welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Good morning, everyone. Welcome along to Gateway this morning. If you're new with us, we extend to you a really warm welcome. Glad to have you regulars back. Um, the regulars will know that we've been in a series over the last few weeks um, talking about becoming radically, pervasively generous people, unselfish in all of the dimensions of our lives. I realize that's an ideal that we strive for as opposed to something that we presently possess, but um, we are exploring that subject. So far in the series, I've suggested that becoming generous involves different uh, mediums of exchange of value that um, money is only one form of generosity, and it isn't the only one. Generosity is not, of course, less than money, but it is considerably more than money. And so in the series, we've considered what it means to be generous with our resources. We've talked about what it might be like to be generous in gratitude and with our words. And last week, we looked at the whole idea of generous hospitality. Um, I've suggested this a number of times, but it's the reality, and it's possible that we can be generous in one particular medium of exchange so that actually we don't have to be generous in another form. Uh, I might want to write a check or uh, at least make a donation to you in some way, uh, and I can use that actually as a means by which I don't have to engage you either emotionally or relationally. It's easier to give somebody some money and send them away as opposed to actually engaging them. It might be that my emotional space or my privacy is more important to me and more valuable to me than the 20 or $50 that I might give away. So giving the 20 or the 50 or whatever it is that we give hardly constitutes um, radical generosity. Jesus told a story on one occasion about a man who, as we look at him outwardly, might in actual fact qualify for being particularly generous. But as we uh, pull the curtains back, it proved that he was, in fact, radically ungenerous at other dimensions of his life. The story goes like this. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax man. And the Pharisee posed and prayed like this. Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, crooks, adulterers, or heaven forbid, like this tax man. I fast twice a week and I tithe on all my income. The man's prayer begins, God, I thank you. And if you stop right there, you might expect that following an introductory phrase like that, there would then follow a long list of things that God had done for this man for which he was particularly grateful. But no. What follows is a long list of things that this man has done for God, and the clear implication is that it is God who should feel particularly grateful. His goodness, at least in his mind, had put God very much in his debt. Now, you'll note that one of the things that this man says that he's done is he's tithed on his income. He's given 10% of his income. And from an external, outward point of view, this is particularly generous. I think I mentioned to you in one of the earlier messages that evangelical Christians in our time give on average 2.5% of their income. And this man puts many of us to complete shame. 
He was far above the average when it came to being generous with his resources. However, this is a classic case of you know, 1 Samuel 16 where God doesn't look on the outside but looks on the heart. And while it's true that he may have been outwardly very, very generous with his money, he was a radically ungenerous person in terms of other currencies. Relationally, this man is a miser. Verse 9 talks about the fact that the reason Jesus told this story is that he was addressing people who were self-righteous and pharisaically despising other people. This man was self-righteous and despised other people relationally. The word in the Greek to despise means to set them at naught, to ridicule them, to look down on them. This is the kind of man that I wouldn't want to be particularly relationally involved with. Outwardly generous, he tithes, but he's critical, he's relationally exacting, he's what we would describe as upright and uptight. In all, a very, very ungenerous person. And you might be tempted to say, well, there you go, that's, that's all the good that tithing does. Now, I would want to say here that Jesus, on another occasion, speaking to the Pharisees and speaking about their tendency to tithe, but to be relationally ungenerous, he said, these things ought you to have done. In the Living Bible, it says, yes, you should have tithed. Jesus wasn't saying, don't do that, for goodness sake. He's saying, you should have done that. But this here, this area of your life is radically, pervasively ungenerous. You need to allow God to touch that particular dimension of your life, that particular currency. So in this message, I want to talk a little bit about what relational generosity might look like. Now, that... Being said, it's an incredibly wide subject, so I'm going to take the opportunity to hone right down on one particular aspect of relational generosity, and I want to talk about what generous forgiveness might look like. Um, through this series, um, Tim Keller from Redeemer Presbyterian has been a huge help um, in terms of my thinking, and I wanted to publicly acknowledge that, and particularly as it relates to this message. His messages on forgiveness I've found very, very helpful. I think all of us are aware that, that, that um, it is the nature of fallen human beings that we, we break things. We, we break, we wound, we damage. Having been wounded, we tend to then go on and wound. And I suspect for each person here this morning, we would, if we were honest, recognize that relationally, uh, we have sometimes incurred a debt uh, in terms of wounding other people and also that other people are relationally in our debt, that they have damaged and wounded us, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. But what happens is we incur a debt. We either owe other people by virtue of our behavior or they owe us. So what I'd like to consider you, with you this morning is what would generosity in this medium of exchange of forgiveness look like? Or perhaps even, is it even possible, given some of the nature of the woundedness that's taken place? So there's a passage in Luke chapter 17 and verses 1 to 6 that I'm going to read to you. It starts like this. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, seven times in a day, returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. 
So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. And from this passage and from the scriptures, I'd like to, say, uh, to comment really on three things. Number one, the enormity of forgiveness. Number two, the process of forgiveness. And number three, the source of forgiveness. So let's look at number one, the enormity of forgiveness. And the passage starts off and says, take heed to yourselves. Well, you know, the interesting thing is when somebody sins against us, when somebody wounds us, our attention is usually on them and not on ourselves. It's all about what they've done, what they've said, how they have acted, and we spend the next period of our time busy watching them, taking heed to them. When in actual fact, Jesus says, when something like that transpires, our attention should be firmly on ourselves. When somebody offends you, as it were, high alert, not in regard to the threat that they pose, but in regard to the threat that is posed within us by the possibility of bitterness springing up. If we are not to end up being unforgiving and being a relationally very ungenerous person, we should be very, very careful when offense takes place. And you know the interesting thing is the writer to the Hebrews says exactly the same thing in chapter 12 and verse 15. Looking carefully, he says, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Jesus says, take heed to yourselves. The writer to the Hebrews says, looking diligently. Watch, watch out for this thing because it's insidious. It's incredibly dangerous. It, is, uh, it, 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 it moves so that it makes you a relationally very, very ungenerous person. You know, the, the Greek word for unforgiveness and bitterness used in the Hebrews passage is, a, is a, a word that has the idea of a wound that then results in anger and wrath. And when we are wounded, anger and, and the deeper issue of wrath are very often company together. So Ephesians chapter 4 verse 31 says, Let bitterness, wrath and anger, clamor and evil speaking, bitterness, wrath and anger, these things go together. If bitterness isn't dealt with, wrath and anger are the natural corollaries. Let me do a little word study with you this morning. It's small, so don't worry too much. But there's an, Anglo, an Anglo-Saxon word, uh, and a very ancient word, rothatho. And from that word, we get a number of English words. Number one, we get the word wreath, which, which is, you know, you know a, a wreath at a funeral service, a branches that are twisted together into a circular shape. So wreath, writhe, to twist and turn in pain. Wrath, which is to be twisted and distorted by anger. And wraith, that's probably a word of those four that you are least familiar with unless you're a Tolkien fan and you know all about ring wraiths. But wraith is an old word for ghost, but it is a particular kind of ghost. It's uh, a wraith as a ghost who had been wronged in life in some way and who had never resolved that wrong, never forgiven it, and they were doomed to return and relive the offense that was committed against them. So their eternity, their eternity going into the future is controlled by and is a reenactment of their wounded past. 
In the light of these words, perhaps we can understand why Jesus and the writer to the Hebrews might warn us about the danger and the nature of unforgiveness. And I'm not suggesting that they did or that we should believe in wraiths, but it is clear from the words that there is something insidious about entertaining bitterness, about entertaining unforgiveness. It's, it's poisonous and it twists and, and turns us. Somebody once quipped that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. And that is what happens. Unforgiveness ultimately will make you a very relationally ungenerous person, and it has the power to twist and distort your personality. One of the things I've noticed pastorally over the years is that unforgiveness seems to be a floating emotion. And by that, I mean that it doesn't stick to the person that initially offended us. If it's not dealt with it, it has this capacity to move and grow. And so I've noticed uh, offended perhaps by one authority figure, we become suspicious and critical about uh, and towards all authority figures. Having been wounded by one man, all men become dogs having been impacted by the behavior of one bad law enforcement officer, they all become pigs. Having been dealt a bad hand by a medical profession, a professional, suddenly the medical profession becomes suspect. And this thing called unforgiveness and bitterness moves and grows and floats. So the consequences are, of unforgiveness are truly enormous. And overcoming the woundedness that results in the bitterness sometimes can be enormously challenging. In verse four, Jesus says, if this man theoretically sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day comes and asks you to forgive him, you, you shall. Now, I'm sure most of you know that in Jewish thinking, seven was a particularly symbolic number. And what Jesus wasn't saying is, listen, seven's enough. On the eighth time, punch him in the face. For goodness sake, just, just deal to him, you know? The, the whole idea of seven is that it has the idea of, of fullness. It's the perfect number beyond which no more is possible. And so perhaps another way of saying this is Jesus might say, if a person would wrong you as completely and fully as another person could wrong another human being and comes and says, forgive me, forgive him. Now that starts to be enormous. And you can understand why the disciples respond to this in verse five by saying, oh my goodness, Lord, increase our faith. How is this, how is this possible? This, this, nobody can do this. This is an enormous task. And so you can perhaps see why we've made the first point, the enormity of forgiveness. The second point I wanna consider is the process of forgiveness. And to talk about forgiveness being a process might seem a bit odd, particularly perhaps in our culture, heavily influenced as it is by psychology. We, we tend to major upon and talk about feelings rather than disciplines, practices, and processes when it comes to the affairs of the heart. You know, years ago, if you were considering an issue, people would ask you, what do you think about such and such and such and such? Today, they're much more liable to ask you, what do you feel about and they'll name an issue. And I think the change of language betrays the shift in focus. We have moved in our culture from discipline and practices and processes to, to feelings. Now, when you forgive 
forgiveness, when you deal with your woundedness and you feel, uh, you view forgiveness through the feeling lens, that can be incredibly problematic. When, when, when forgiveness becomes equated with, synonymous with how we feel, we're in deep trouble. Because I hear people say, well, you know what, I'm really mad at them. And I can't forgive them when I feel like this. I'll have to wait until the feelings change before I can authentically forgive. To forgive them as I feel now is completely inauthentic. But quite frankly, if you wait till you feel forgiving, you might never, ever get there. The reality is some people have been treated so poorly by others that no matter how long they wait, they will never feel good about what's transpired. Sometimes people say to me, Don, well, time heals all. Well, you know what? Time may be somewhat therapeutic, but it simply isn't true that time heals all. I, I know pastorally, I've had people in my office, I think of one particular occasion, I had an 80-year-old uh, in my office just weeping profusely over a hurt that had transpired in her preteen years. And time does not heal all necessarily. I think Scripture indicates that forgiveness is more often granted before it's felt than vice versa. It's practiced before it's felt. I think if you go into dealing with uh, deep hurts and wounds with an unrealistic expectation of how forgiveness might unfold, you'll probably stumble. It's really helpful to have a realistic view of how forgiveness might be achieved. Now obviously that depends on the nature and the severity of the wound that, that you are dealing with. If you just ticked off because someone's spoken harshly to you at work, then you know that's relatively minor, to be honest. When you're talking about abuse of some form or betrayal of some form, it becomes another matter. And for many, many people, forgiveness may be a lengthy process that actually involves some struggle and some discipline. You know, Philippians chapter two says, we work out our salvation. It means we affect with toil our salvation with trembling and fear. Sometimes, sometimes it's, it's not always easily granted. I, I know that it can happen miraculously. I'm not saying that it can't, but more often than not, just simply because a person utters the words, I forgive, it, it doesn't necessarily disappear. That might be the beginning of the process, but it isn't always the end of it. I think there are some things, as you look at that passage in Luke chapter 17, there's some critical steps that might, help, that might be really, really helpful as we consider this whole process of learning to forgive people and learning to become relationally generous as a forgiving person. The first thing I notice in there is Jesus says, if a brother or a sister offend you, the first thing I think we have to do is refuse the temptation to caricature the perpetrator the one that has wounded us. One of the things that often happens when we've been offended is we emphasize the discontinuities between them and us. We don't think of them in terms of a brother or a sister. We emphasize the discontinuities. I would never do that. I would never behave like that. I would have never have said that. And it is so easy to then reduce the people that have wounded us to what they've done. So if they've told us a lie, they are liars. And I've heard people say that with venom. They're nothing but liars. So these people that have lied to us become one-dimensional cartoon villains in our thinking. You know, the irony is if we are caught 
telling a lie, we wouldn't want to be treated in that way. When we are found out that we've said something untrue, we say, all right, oh, well, yes, I shouldn't have done that, but it's complicated. You know, there, there are extenuating circumstances which if I explain to you, might at least help you understand why I did what I shouldn't have done. But, but you know, what I did wasn't intended to be as bad as it turned out. They are liars. On the other hand, we're multi-dimensional human beings with all the complexities that go with being human. You know, we don't acknowledge or offer them the same relational elasticity that we ask for ourselves. Don't caricature them. Jesus says, brothers, sisters. You know, I think that's an exhortation to identify with them in some respect. Before you highlight the discontinuities between them and you, you have to see there are some continuities. There are at least two things that you share with, the offend, with, the, with your offender. Miroslav Volf, who wrote an incredible book on forgiveness called Exclusion and Embrace, wrote this. He said, forgiveness flounders because I excuse the enemy from the community of humans even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. Two communities he mentions. The community of humans and the community of sinners. I share with my offender the community of humanity. We are together, made in the image of God. Together we are complex beings of great dignity and worth. We're actually more the same than we are different. There are more continuities between me and the person who wounds me than the discontinuities. But in my unforgiveness, in my bitterness, I exclude the person who has offended me from the community of humanities. And so often we say something like, yeah, they're just dogs or idiots or something much, much worse. And Wolf notes that not only do we exclude them from the community of humanity, but we then exclude ourselves from the community of sinners. We imagine they are, we are better than them. We would never do that. We would never say that. But the reality is it's hard to stay angry with somebody and offended with them unless we feel superior to them. Honestly, Let's, let's be clear that while we claim to never do anything exactly like they have just done, because we are fellow sinners, we can and probably have done something quite like the thing they have done. You know, the one who offends us is needy, weak, complicated, fallible, and sinful. All in all, very much like you, very much like me. It's, it's so easy to demonize and bestialize our offenders, but in so doing, we refuse to acknowledge them as part of the community of humanity, and we exclude ourselves from the community of sinfulness. It isn't that we behave in this way because we don't know that. Actually, if we stop and think about it, we do know it, but the truth of the matter is we, we refuse to concede it. And we choose to accept only those explanations and interpretations that serve our offended interests. Somebody once said to me, Don, you can't give an answer to an offended heart. An offended heart doesn't want an answer. It only wants to accuse. And there is so, there's so much truth in that. It's not that we don't know that we're part of the community of humanity and part of the community of sinfulness. We refuse to concede it and we sift out so that the explanations and interpretations of this caricature serve our offended interests and we nurture our hurts. 
It's as if we allow our wounded memories to sit in the living room of our minds in the very best chair and we force our entire lives to pivot around it. And we do it because there is, let's be honest, a demonic deliciousness to reliving it. We come to fully believe the cartoon distortion that we've created. Generous forgiveness starts by refusing to caricature people. It doesn't say that what happened doesn't matter. It really doesn't say that, but it refuses to create a cartoon caricature. I think the second thing to consider as we look at the process of forgiveness is to recognize that a debt has been occurred, it must be paid, but forgiveness surrenders our right to demand that repayment. An ungenerous person demands repayment. And and again, let's be honest, for most of us, tit for tat is the way we seem to be wired. They made you unhappy, you make them unhappy. They hurt you, you hurt them, directly or indirectly. In short, getting even, getting repayment of the debt feels good. There's, There's something of justice in that. But in the long term, what's happening is you are being subtly, or perhaps not so subtly, twisted, wraith-like. Generous forgiveness is about foregoing the right to repayment and personally absorbing that outstanding debt. What it does is it cuts the equivalence between the offense and the way we treat the offender. It refuses tit for tat and it foregoes the rightful claim that we have against those who have wronged us. The Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy noted that by forgiving a person, uh, he says, one swallows up evil into oneself and thereby prevents it from going any further. Now, I know for people who have been deeply and brutally wounded, this kind of forgiveness might sound like a chief avoidance of justice. And, um, you know, I've heard people say, that's just plastering over wrongdoing. It's, a sen- it's just sentimental make-believe. I want justice. But there is, friends, a fine line and one that's very difficult to draw between justice and revenge. We cry justice, but what we want is retribution. We want justice for them. And so often, as I said about relational elasticity before, for ourselves, we want understanding and we hope for mercy. Forgiveness doesn't dismiss or disregard the offense. It isn't pretending that the offense didn't happen Uh, or or it doesn't matter. That is sentimental make-believe. It doesn't shrug it off and say, it doesn't matter, forget it. It clearly does matter and often will not, in fact, be forgotten. You know, you, you hear people saying, oh, well, forgive and forget. But seriously, folks, some of you have been wounded in ways that might never be erased from your memory. And when you hear forgive and forget, somebody has just erected a barrier that will actually stop the possibility of real forgiveness. To say to somebody who has been brutally betrayed or perhaps sexually abused, forgive and forget, is like asking them to climb Mount Everest barefoot and without oxygen. Forgiveness and forgetfulness are not necessarily the same thing. To forgive, actually, is to name and condemn the misdeed. 
It doesn't say forget it and pretend it never happened. It is to name and condemn the misdeed. But it actually, it, it actually affirms the rightful claims of justice, but it, it does not demand the punishment that the deed actually should have incurred. Again, Miroslav Volf says this, the difference between justice and forgiveness is to be just is to condemn the fault and because of the fault to condemn the doer as well. To forgive is to condemn the fault but spare the doer. So forgiveness is not saying doesn't matter, forget it. It's saying I will not press charges. It's not a statement about the offender's innocence or guilt. It is simply to relinquish our desire for retribution. We, we give up the right to be judge, jury, and executioner. Friends, justice is too big a job for you. It's too big a job for me. And some of us need to resign from being CEO of the universe, demanding justice for the people that have offended us. It's too big for you. And you go down that line, it tips into retribution and revenge, and it begins to twist and distort. And that's why Jesus is saying, take heed to yourselves. Be, be really careful. This is too big for you to carry. What I would have you do is acknowledge that the offense has taken place. Don't pretend or make believe. But don't you try and deal with the justice regarding that. We give up our right to be judge, jury, and executioner. So there's the enormity of forgiveness, there's the process of, forg uh, process of forgiveness, and finally, there's the source of forgiveness. As I've suggested to you, when you start talking like this, you recognize you are talking about something that is completely beyond the normal human capacity. We are talking about something quite supernatural, and that's why the disciples heard what Jesus said and said, whoa, Lord, you're going to have to increase our faith for us to believe that. For someone to wound us as deeply and profoundly as is possibly to be, to be wounded, and then just to simply say, I forgive you, this is beyond us. We're wired for tit for, we're wired for tit for tat. Generous forgiveness is completely supernatural, and I think it stems from a revelation of the profound forgiveness that we have received from the hand of God. You know, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus told a story that we call the parable of the unmerciful servant. You, you know it, I don't have to read it. A man is forgiven a huge and quite unpayable debt by a very, very merciful master. He then goes out and demands payment of a relatively small debt from another fellow servant. And this man is brutally unmerciful in his treatment of that fellow servant. Well, the forgiving master hears about that, is deeply shocked, and brings the unmerciful servant back and turns him over to the hands of the tormentors. And he said, there you will remain until the debt is repaid. Graciously forgiven, this man is miserly in terms of the way he ministers forgiveness. Generously forgiven and yet completely ungenerous in the ministry and ministration of that which he has received. We understand this story is quite incongruous. It should read, graciously forgiven, he goes out and with an open heart graciously forgives. It's a revelation of the grace and mercy of God toward us that opens up the possibility for us forgiving people who have wounded us. 
His forgiveness of us is supposed to impact and shape our responses toward those who have offended us and profoundly graced we become gracious. Ephesians 4.32 says, forgive one another as quickly and as thoroughly as God in Christ forgave you. I talked about the fact that woundedness incurs a debt and somebody has to pay that debt. Either you demand payment from the person who has offended you or as Tolstoy says, you swallow that debt, you absorb it within yourself. Christ absorbed, as it were, and swallowed the debt that our sins incurred. Sin creates a very real debt. Moral law has been violated and debt must be paid. God simply can't say, oh, let's pretend it didn't happen. Forget it, it doesn't matter. Time heals all, the kinds of things that we say about forgiveness. God literally had two options, make us pay or absorb the debt and pay it himself. And you know that God in Christ paid the debt himself. You know, when Jesus was on the cross and he cried out as he died in John chapter 19, it is finished. In the Greek, it literally means the debt has been paid. On the cross, he swallowed the debt that we incurred. Now in this business, our forgiveness toward others who have wounded and hurt us is simply an echo of God's incredibly generous forgiveness toward us. When we see and experience that grace and then empowered by the Holy Spirit within us, we can release the debt that has been incurred against us. I'm not suggesting it's simple. For some of you, you have been so profoundly and deeply wounded and then shaped um, by the twisting work of anger and wrath. Perhaps you say, rightful, rightful anger, righteous anger, indignation. I understand, but the reality is it twists and turns and it's too big a burden for you to carry. And what it does is it makes you an incredibly ungenerous person relationally. That's why Jesus says, take heed to yourselves. Take heed to yourselves. When somebody offends you, high alert. Not be on high alert against them, but what will this do for you? What will this do to you? What will happen, or rather won't happen, through you because of this? God wants us to be radically, pervasively generous with our resources, with our words, with our private spaces and our hospitality, with our generous forgiveness to those people who have wounded us. He wants us all in all to be just like he is. You know, I said at the start of this series, God is not trying to raise money, he's trying to raise kids. And he wants the generosity that's in his heart to pervasively invade every medium of exchange in our lives. So that our homes, instead of becoming bitter, twisted, angry places where words are harshly spoken and tit for tat, you hurt me, I will hurt you, start to change. And they can. You say, well, it's been like that, Don, for so long. You know, it's twisted out of shape. I try and it just flicks back. You know, like a plant that's grown so long, untended and untethered, that it just flicks back into its... Well, you know what? The Holy Spirit can come along, drive a stake deep down into your heart and tether you around. He has that ability. And if you'll open your heart and say, Lord, I, I know that I need this. I, 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 you know, I have been hurt. I have been wounded. I do nurture these grudges. 
I think that's the place you start, the honesty of, you know, I, I can't explain this away. I can't just um, say, well, you know, they, they, this is righteous indignation or whatever. You know, I, I, I acknowledge I'm becoming a bitter, twisted person and I don't want to be. It starts there. And it can start there for every one of us today. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.